0: listeners and welcome to another episode of Comparing Campaign. I am your host Tom Lando and with me as always is my co-host Miguel. And we were just having a and d talk. It's uh it's the 27th of April 2021 and uh this is episode what uh 58 58 and uh yeah mcgill and i you see uh i began running a mini campaign for mcgill and my friends jess and liam you can actually see it on jeff's uh jeff's uh, on on jess's uh twitch um twitch tv slash little uh l-i-l-b-o-o-f-s can see an episode of me running the first session of ashes against the grain. And she will probably, uh, record and stream the next episode. Which I always forget
1: uh, that she, uh, streams those. Hope I didn't say anything too stupid.
0: Uh, I thought it like, like I, I watched it back and it was very enjoyable. I thought it nice. was, uh, it the session went really, really well, but, um, McGill has just been telling me about how he's just leveled up his character and, uh, he chose to roll his hit dice for, uh, his hit points increase. And me personally, I feel that you should take average or, you know, I don't know. I, I just, uh, you know, it's funny in my, in my regular game, I actually, I treat the players as having rolled the maximum each level because I want them to have like as much HP as possible. Um I guess mainly because it's just like the most intense game that I'm running where like, you know, I'm gonna throw the most at them.
1: And I like the dice. I'm I'm just a fan of that random number generator, uh, in all aspects of D and D. I don't very... fudge rolls, I don't take the average, and, and I'm the I'm, dice decide.
0: I'm very I'm very lenient like I was saying like basically I I will allow people to do things like uh take average if they roll terribly but then keep the number if they roll well like I was saying that that's the way that my brother and I started playing Warhammer because I would get so frustrated by bad dice rolls like totally turning the the tenor of a battle um so we we would uh, we started a, a system that I called Wimp Hammer or Average of Sigmar, which is, uh, you know, you roll your dice. If you roll well, you keep it. If you roll terribly, you take average. And that way everybody's doing, like, at least an average amount of <laughs> decent fighting rather than some people just, like, dropping their weapons mid-game and ruining everything. <laughs>
1: And as I was saying to you, Tom, part of the reason I like the randomness of the dice is because it can add that little bit of flavor. So my character in your your campaign, uh, he's an orc barbarian, but I rolled terribly for his hit points, uh, leveling up to level four. Uh, I rolled consistently bad on my hit dice But I'm just going with it, because I find it kind of funny that there is this burly orc barbarian following the path of the totem warrior. His totem is a bear, and he's really strong, but he can't take a lot of damage, and that amuses me.
0: And, uh, yeah, what else? I mean, um... It occurred to me listening back to the most recent episode that's gone up that, like, these episodes go up late enough after we record them that, like, our references tend to be pretty stale by the time they come up. The newest episode we were talking about ever given, and everybody's forgotten about that. Um, <laughs> we got kind of lucky with the Mortal Kombat one because Mortal Kombat's just having a moment right now. But you know. We might as well talk about it, anyways. We both watched the new Mortal Kombat movie. Yeah, that's right. It kicked ass. I thought, I,
1: I thought it was pretty good. I didn't think it was like totally kick ass, but uh, it's like an hour and fifty minutes long, and right at the one hour mark, that's when it gets really good.
0: I felt, um, I, I was, I think I was on board the whole time, uh, but. Like, I liked that they basically went back to the formula of the original film and, like, deviated from it as little as possible. Like, it's just a series of loosely connected fights, basically. Oh, but um, no
1: tournament. I don't get it. I don't get it, man.
0: I, that's just dispensing with the nonsense of the tournament in the first place, because it's not like Shang Tsang doesn't literally cheat every time. Oh, that's um, true,
1: but they even base the movie around the fact that there's a tournament and then just forget about the tournament entirely.
0: I mean, <laughs> Shang Tsung cheats. What, it, it happens every time. Um, I was also going to say... Uh, more, oh, I really like that Like the pacing for that movie is like... Fast forward, basically, it's like they're when when Sonya Blade is explaining the history of Mortal Kombat, it's like they know that the audience is only going to be half listening at that point because it's so self-explanatory that like she barely takes a breath in explaining the whole thing. She's just like da, 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 and we're just seeing like they're looking at pictures of Mortal Kombat. They see Nightwolf in a book. Uh some people fight and there's Kano and it's just like, yep, we got it all. It's all done. Nobody nobody stopped talking, it nobody stopped for anything. Let's just move on to the next fight as quickly as possible. And uh I dug it.
1: The big highlights for me were definitely the fights and the way the characters are depicted. Like the I mean, some people do go into Mortal Kombat for the plot. I am not one of those people. Uh, For me, the way a Mortal Kombat movie succeeds is showing me the characters from the video game having fights and doing their trademark moves and, like, looking like the characters. Boy, did it deliver that. Uh, I gotta say that, like, really the only thing that that wasn't totally in line with the characters from the video game is that Kano's face isn't made of metal, but I don't know. It's forgivable. He was still really funny.
0: Even then, it's, like, just the part over his eye usually, like yeah um anyways uh yeah i was um my favorite part was the spamming the sweep kick part um
1: my favorite part was kung lao doing a fatality that was the best part of the movie man kung lao was awesome altogether, but uh his his saw blade fatality was terrific
0: that was a very uh new era mortal combat but yeah it was it was dope all the all the fatalities but this is what i wanted to bring up is um son uh, okay i won't spoil but like someone gets killed with a garden gnome and like they sort of foreshadow it but like I All I could think was like, is that like a reference to a friendship that somebody has in the game or something? But I looked it up and I couldn't find anything. And so now all I can think is like they're going to have to put a Garden Gnome related move of some kind in a Mortal Kombat now to explain what the hell happened there.
1: I am wondering if they're going to put out a new Mortal Kombat game soon that fills in a few things from the movie like adding this guy cole as a character because the main the protagonist of the movie isn't a mortal kombat character he was just invented for the film and uh, so i'm wondering if they're gonna try and cram him into the next game to make it fit
0: well they easily could do you know what has happened in the plot line of mortal kombat at this point as of mortal kombat 11
1: um no not entirely because I haven't played a Mortal Kombat game in forever. However, I did recently watch the trailers for Mortal Kombat 11 and it sounds like they're resetting the timeline. There's some like the the villain is Kronika who can rewrite history.
0: There's two timelines now. They've done like a Star Trek they've done like the new JJ from Star Trek and oh, wow. like like uh, like there's alternate versions of all the characters that can like fight each other. Like Johnny Cage has an alternate Johnny Cage and like the alternate Johnny Cage has like, man, man, I think there's like one in one of the alternate realities. It's like two characters that don't have a kid, have a kid now. And like um, and they keep adding all these other characters. So now like Terminator's in it.
1: Yeah, I know. And Rambos
0: in it, too. Yeah. But now they can just do anything from any of the timelines, so whatever.
1: You know what? I'm totally on board for it. I like that they're they're making lore around the idea of two people picking the same character for a fight.
0: <laughs> exactly. 100%. <laughs> like,
1: like, normally it's just two people pick the same character and one of them is wearing a slightly different costume, but now it's a totally different, you know, Johnny Cage from a totally different timeline. I like it.
0: Um yeah and certain characters are evil in certain timelines and not evil in others uh yeah it's it's wild stuff so like at this point they wouldn't even need to make a new game really they could literally just put Cole in mortal kombat 11 as a dlc and be like we pulled him in from the time sphere or some shit have Um, you played
1: mortal kombat 11
0: only a tiny bit is Um, it any good The thing is that I uh, like I'm not inherently good at fighting games enough to just pick up a Mortal Kombat and get a sense of how good it is right away. Um,
1: Because after watching the movie, I'm definitely in the mood to play some Mortal Kombat, but I I don't know which game to get my hands on. Like Eleven looks pretty darn cool, but I don't know. I hear Mortal Kombat X has uh, some good stuff, too you play as the xenomorph in that
0: one (laughs) yeah that's the best that's just like me and Fortnite. but um no i mean i i think that those games would totally deliver in terms of like what you're looking for after watching that movie i think uh one thing that i'm pretty sure they introduced in the newer games is a thing where there's like you can set it to a mode where fatalities are much easier to do rather than having to like learn the combo for them. And so that like makes the game immediately a lot more gratifying. Um, So yeah, that's cool. Like the fact, I think that Mortal Kombat is generally as a game tended towards more like being the more accessible fighting game, like not making you have to learn a ton of stuff to be good at it, but rather just like, You know, you learn some basic combos and those do really, really cool things, which are my kind of favorite fighting game. uh, Sweep the leg, man. That too. Spam that leg sweep. But yeah, it is hard to tell. Like I've maybe played one or two rounds, so it's hard to tell if like, you know, if the whole game is actually that good. Um, Other news. So we, we saw the new Mortal Kombat. Uh, I went to the local head shop near me selling bongs and whatnot and picked up because they started carrying rare cereals and I bought some (laughs) rare cereals at the head shop.
1: Tell me that you, is there a mortal Kombat cereal?
0: I wish I, I would have bought it in a second. It didn't even have to be good. Um, and then you'd,
1: you'd get down to the bottom of the bowl where there's just milk and you'd be like finish it (laughs) slip it up
0: uh no i got caramel apple jacks i got Dunkaroos cereal and oh my god honey (laughs) lucky charms yeah right i got honey lucky charms they even had others they they even this uh head shop they even carry uh rare drinks and stuff too wow um they started carrying all this stuff uh, I also, you were mentioning the possibility of a Mortal Kombat serial, and that put an idea in my a memory in my mind. Uh, you know, have you, like, do you have a lot of experience with trying a lot of different, like, short lived uh, promotional serials?
1: I mean, you got to define a lot of experience. I've definitely tried. like a bunch of different short lived promotional cereals. And sometimes I'll, I'll splurge and try, you know, some weird uh, limited edition soft drink or something. As a kid, I really liked C3PO's.
0: Okay. So that's, that's a good example. Um, I often do like, I'm not a soft drink guy, but I will like spend extra for like every once in a while, I'll buy like a fancy new special edition cereal that's on sale or something like you know, the uh chocolate l- chocolate lucky charms. That was a good one. Lucky
1: Charms with the purple horseshoe? I can't remember. I think they, they all there's have. There's always that now. like there's always limited edition marshmallows in Lucky Charms.
0: R- right. Um, but you know what this is reminding me of so, so there, the, I guess like in terms of like experience, the measuring stick for this for me is like I growing up when I was in like elementary school and like junior high and stuff, um, there were cereals that my mom would get. And so they would just be like the cereals that were available in the house for breakfast every day. And sometimes there were weird, like promotional cereals that entered circulation that, um, you know, they'd just be there for a while and I'd get totally used to them. And then they disappear because the promotion was over uh so examples include there was a marshmallow pokemon cereal and my favorite thing about that is that one of the marshmallow one of like the marshmallows were the pokemon right like you have your your grain crispies whatever and then you have your marshmallows and the marshmallows though it has the color and so that's what they do the po the pokemon with right
1: are there like pokeballs mixed in too
0: I think that the Grain crispies were like sort of the design of the Pokeball, maybe. But I'm not sure about that. They might have just been like little pluses, like Lucky Charms. Um, Point is, my favorite thing about this was that one, like, like, so they could pick like four Pokemon, basically, out of like 150 to be the marshmallows in this cereal. And one of the Pokemon they picked was Ditto who is literally just a pink blob <laughs> well
1: you don't gotta shell out for uh, exactly. elaborate elaborate like, ink jobs or, or molds
0: who which of these pokemon are we gonna do uh well which are the popular ones well you know pikachu bulbasaur charmander man this one has fire how the hell are we gonna make a marshmallow out of this hey what's this guy he's just like a pink splotch that's ditto okay we're gonna have ditto marshmallows
1: <laughs> is another one uh what wheezing or one of those ones that's just like a cloud
0: yeah like coughing or something i honestly i I don't remember i just remember that it like also the thing is these like sort of short-lived promotional cereals when they had marshmallows i found that the marshmallows were always of like a lower quality than like lucky charms marshmallows in that like they would not retain their uh, structure like the ditto would just like dissolve in milk basically. <laughs> like, <it'd laughs> well, it was be, like it just be like marshmallow it was assuming, sludge. The,
1: assuming the form of the milk.
0: Yes, exactly. And uh yeah, and then the other one I remember was uh there was a Clone Wars cereal that was little uh clone trooper helmets. Um <laughs> I wasn't a big fan of that one to be honest, but we had it for a long time and I ate a lot of it. <laughs> anyways i can't remember uh, the
1: last novelty cereal i bought i think mr t had a cereal for a while man where uh, all the 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 green bits were all the letter t uh
0: moving along to another uh weird sort of tangent thing before oh, come we on i was really hoping you'd like segue segue
1: back into the main topic by saying and i bought a D cereal
0: well i man i wish but uh You know, I was also going to go back as like, you know, because I, I finished Mortal Kombat thinking like, yeah, that's one of the better video game movies out there. But at this point, you know, the question is, what are the big video game movies? And, uh, you know, talking all about that Ditto reminds me is like, I think a big contender is Detective Pikachu. It's a good ass movie. They did great work with Ditto and Mr. Mime in that movie. And those are not. Those are not standout Pokemon. Typically,
1: that movie is enough of a movie that I don't think of it as a video game movie, even though it is obviously a video game movie. I, when I think about it, I just think like, oh yeah, like Detective Pikachu. I think of it more like, a, like a live action version of the cartoon than anything.
0: So, like I think for me, when I think video game movies that I like that I've enjoyed, I think Mortal Kombat. I think Detective Pikachu, I think Warcraft. I liked Warcraft.
1: Yeah, I wasn't too keen on Warcraft. I thought the new Sonic one was surprisingly entertaining for what it was. Yeah,
0: I haven't watched that. I haven't watched that. No, I like Warcraft. I wish there was more Warcraft. That's like Dungeons & Dragons. Is that our segue? It starts with an orc giving birth. And then he does the Orc Moses, which is canon Warcraft. I love it. But they don't even get to follow up on that. That's like a whole other story beginning. It's just at the beginning of the other one.
1: Just abandoned.
0: Well. There are a lot Moses. of video games
1: where I'm just I'm shocked that they just never made them into a movie.
0: Man, movies are expensive. I don't know. They
1: are, but like, you, you know it was a time in the 90s where they were like okay this video game's popular we're making a movie sometimes they're mortal Kombat, and sometimes they're street fighter but I, f-
0: I feel like the 90s is like what ruined video game movies and we're just barely like climbing out of that wreckage from the 90s that was like fucking mad nonsense you Super say Marvel. that
1: but but Mortal Kombat is still held up as like one of the best video game movies ever made.
0: Yeah, that's like the one though. All the other ones from that period are like, ugh.
1: I thought that first Hitman with Timothy Oliphant was okay. It wasn't very good, but it was passable. It at least resembled Hitman.
0: Man, but now Hitman's so good. I'd hide it I'd hold it to a higher standard, is the trouble. Yeah. Anyway, so we're uh, that was our D&D episode oh, of yeah. Segway. Uh, that was our episode of comparing campaign. Um, <laughs> so this is episode fifty-eight. I got compare Operation, and complain more like. I got Operation Larval Door. Oh, this isn't a, something to complain about, but something else I've been doing that I mentioned to, meant to mention to you is uh, I finally started watching that um, Watchmen HBO series.
1: That's a good series. That's another, yeah. much like the Sonic movie, better than it has any right to be.
0: I, man, I keep saying, because I'm watching it with my sister, I keep looking over and saying, like, if I hadn't heard so many good things about this show, I would have zero faith in what was going on right now. Right? It's, it's like complete. It's just, it's, it feels so much like the leftovers in that it's like just a Damon Lindelof show through and through. It's like, Everything just has that quirkiness about it that like sort of you never know if they're going to pull a punch or just go full bizarre and the inconsistency of that makes it kind of thrilling. Um,
1: (laughs) I mean, it is very much a Damon Lindelof series. There's no denying that.
0: To me, it's almost like the auteur mark of Damon Lindelof between the Leftovers and the Watchmen series is... In the Watchmen series, there is a very short scene with a hilarious, comical blue dildo. And um, yep. in The Leftovers, during one of the most, like, I would argue, high-intensity episodes of the entire series, there is a very goofy part where the main character must uh, awkwardly operate... um what is effectively a retinal scanner for his penis. (laughs) Like he gets to a security door and there's like a scanner, but it's at crotch level. And he just like, he spends so much time like looking around to make sure nobody can see him use it. And then like carefully try to like pull his genitals out of his pants in such a way that he's not showing them off while putting them in the weird uh, device. And like, I think that that, bizarre way of approaching sort of like what would otherwise be like very flagrant hbo sexuality is like a very damon lindelof thing it's like oh we're gonna have sex stuff but we're not gonna do it right like you want
1: (laughs) that's in the leftovers there's a, a wiener scanner in the leftovers. yes yeah god maybe i need to watch that show after all that sounds totally
0: bizarre Um, man, oh my god the the episode I'm talking about is like truly, truly bizarre. Um, and and again, I think like I think maybe there's a lot of people who enjoyed the Watchmen show. Um, like you say, it has it's better than it has any right to be. I think maybe uh the leftovers, certain elements of it. Certainly, I would say like the stuff that interested me was like sort of later in the show. But like, I think that that stuff may come off in a better light now that Watchmen has sort of like, you've gone through that nonsense and it turned out okay, which is very much my, like, you know, my, my experience watching Watchmen is basically like, you know, normally with these Damon Lindelof things, I feel like I'm being strung along and it's just like, But, well, I think the worst of it is when you feel like you're being strung along. And the best of it is when you understand on its face that it is, like, going to be very, like like I was saying, like, you're never going to know if it's just mundane weirdness or, like, totally off the wall or, like, what you're going to get. Like, I, I was saying to my sister, like, Damon Lindelof shows are just like, this show is anything, It it could be anything. It could be a thing. It could be anything. And and so that sort of like um, establishes what's so interesting about watching the show. It's so often you'll be like, well, what the fuck's going on here now? Um, But as long as you don't feel like you're being strung along on sort of like a typical mystery plot or anything, and instead you're just like sort of enjoying the weird buffet for what it is, Um, I think it's kind of like, that's the state in which to enjoy, uh, his work in my opinion at this point.
1: That sounds about right from what, uh, I've seen of Lindelof's stuff.
0: Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think, well, I guess the, the thing I was, I, that, I don't know if I mentioned, uh, recently at all as I watched that, um, if I, if I mentioned on the podcast that I watched that Invincible cartoon, or I watched a bit of it, and I didn't really enjoy it, but like, I realized afterwards that it really put me in the mood for a superhero thing, and like, Watchmen is very, it's very much a totally different thing from the superhero thing that I was envisioning, but there's still enough of like a superhero thing in the air for me these days that like I, I've already talked to you about it is like I've got this hankering to do after we do our current mini campaign, a superhero mini campaign, yeah. the all time greats that I have uh, already put a ton of work into just uh, because I felt compelled to. Uh, I would just kind of got carried away with it and cool. uh, very excited to do that. Hopefully be talking about that at some point.
1: Yeah, I'm really excited to see what you come up with. Uh, regarding that one
0: that one's fun because um with the you know i'm doing the mini campaign format the same format where it's like between there's going to be about like six parts and between each one there's a jump of about four levels but um with the superhero one one thing that i'm doing with it is i'm actually writing notes of like so like the first adventure is issue one but then the next adventure is issue 10 and i have a little note of like what theoretically happened in the comic book between it's like uh this one there were some guest writers for a little while there was a subplot about werewolves uh but then (laughs) this is like really the beginning of the important arc and uh so I've been, yeah, I've been reading uh, some comic books and stuff. I read a bit of, uh, of the black and white Blade comics from the 70s. Oh, wow. Today. Man, they're... Did you know Blade's supposed to be British?
1: Oh, man. It's another, uh, John Constantine thing.
0: He's, uh, he's born in, uh, or, or Ray Den. No, he's, uh, born in Soho. Uh, his mom was a prostitute and, huh. um when they there were complications in childbirth uh so they called a doctor but the doctor turned out, out to be a vampire and and sucked his mom's blood dry but since he was born during that process he became blade with an immunity to vampire bites and stuff and the funniest thing is that he like literally explains this to a person like in a car ride in like the first two pages of huh. the issue that I was reading Anyway. Um yeah, very excited about the idea of doing superhero role playing games. Uh but yeah, I, I I got off my thing earlier. I was saying uh I got Operation Larval Door. It's still happening in hell for me. And you've got live from Eberron session twelve, and according to this, it's the last one.
1: It is the last one. It means that and... next
0: time I'm gonna get to brainstorm some crazy ending.
1: Heck yeah. I'm looking forward to, to hearing what you come up with, and I'll share some of my thoughts on. I want to do
0: as much as possible to subvert expectations.
1: They all die in the Mornland. <laughs> um but yeah, this is sort of the, the unofficial end of the Live from Eberron campaign because. I don't even remember the specific reasons uh, why this one ended. It was just one of those things where like people got busy with work and we had to keep pushing back the game and pushing back the game. And then eventually like it just petered out and uh, you know, a long time went by where we just weren't playing D&D and then we picked it up again at a later date with a different campaign because this one had fizzled away. You know how it is. But it's kind of a shame because uh it certainly ends like just as we're about to get to some really fun material,
0: oh man, well, I guess uh I guess I'm excited to hear about it for what it's worth.
1: Should I start us off
0: yeah let's let's jump into it,
1: so at the end of the last session, the players uh became. Citizens of Carnath, uh, because they returned the kidnapped daughter of King Caius. And uh, the guy who was their contact is Baron Zorlin. And uh, they need to get to the Black Pits Metal Festival. And they were asking him, like, what's the fastest way that we can get there? And Zorlin was like, well, the fastest way is definitely to just cut a path straight through the Mornlands. And you know what? I can arrange that for you. I have guys who go through the Mornlands all the time. So, tell you what. I'm going to load you up with a cart and some horses. You guys head down to Fort Zombie, that's right on the border of the <laughs> Mornland. And uh, there you'll meet up with uh, a cleric named Orvis. And Orvis will be your escort through the Mornland to get you down to the Black Hills. And they were like, okay, I guess. None of the players really knew that much about the Mornland, so they were like, doesn't sound like a great place, but...
0: I'm about to find out.
1: But on the map of Eberron, it really just looks like a desert. So they're like, all right, sure, why not? Fort Zombie sounds weird, but okay.
0: <laughs>
1: so I started this one off. Uh, I do this sometimes with my players, and I'd be curious to know if you do it as well, but I often like to start the adventure, and stuff's already happening, and then I take a minute to sort of do a flashback to before they left to see if there's any, like, shopping or downtime that they need to take care of before the adventure continues. So in this case, it starts... Yeah, I've
0: done similar things with my Cyberpunk game, and and even uh, Ashes Against the Grain, the mini-campaign that I'm running, to some extent, is like, you know, I do an intro that basically... You know, we've done the character building, like the shopping and stuff beforehand, but I have an intro that sort of glosses over that.
1: So in this case, uh, it starts with Alan Dare just waking up suddenly. He's been sleeping in the back of this cart that they're using to get to Fort Zombie, uh... He like sits up he slept really poorly the only two people in the party that need to sleep are Dare and mervyn because all the others are elves and, or some other race that doesn't require sleep and so Dare wakes up and he's you know really groggy groggy didn't sleep well it's right before dawn and uh so i, I you know describe the scene And, say, you're in this open-topped cart that was once used by farmers to transport goods to market. It was provided by Baron Zorlin along with a pair of draft horses. And uh, it serves well as a means of travel, the destination being Fort Zombie. And then I go, flashback to before you left, is there anything you want to, like, buy or stock up on before you go? And give the players a little chance to do some shopping and be like, okay, I want to sell my, you know, my old common sword and buy a better thing that sort of stuff and then we loop back to uh the adventure uh they were traveling through the night they spent much of yesterday just like getting prepared um alan dare wasn't able to find a replacement hurdy-gurdy and he was disgusted that mervin tried to like pass off a counterfeit hurdy-gurdy as his own (laughs) Uh, so Alan Dare instead bought a lute, and he's like plucking away on the lute. But he's unhappy about the fact that he still hasn't gotten his instrument back, and he never will, damn it, because the the campaign ended. Um,
0: Should have settled for that counterfeit.
1: I guess so. Uh Nick Doe is driving the cart. Uh, Cole, his Colothoth, his uh, bodyguard and follower, is seated next to him. Gabriel and Marcus are just sitting on the back of the cart or, you know, I gave them the option, they can, like, walk alongside it if they want. And Jalen has fully adopted the zombie manticore as his mount and named it Rotstench. So nice. Rotste- <laughs> Rotstench is following along behind the cart as well. And uh, they... And he sort of scouts ahead and in the distance, he can see Fort Zombie poking out of the fog. There's this... Like thick gray fog looming over everything before the sunrise, and through it, uh, maybe an hour away, he can say, see this black gothic structure of Fort Zombie. And as they approach, suddenly the air is full of the stench of rotting flesh, and the you know the pallid light of day is trying to fight its way through the fog, and uh, the the fort comes into view. It's three stories tall. It occupies the space about the size of a city block. The walls are covered in jagged spikes to discourage people trying to scale them. And the stones of the fort have this weird texture to them that looks like peeling skin. And then as they approach, they can see atop the walls, there are armored guards posted at intervals, but none of them are moving. And the only sounds are just like the breeze and the clopping of the horses. And the closer they get, like, as they get closer, they realize all the guards are all zombies just standing there at attention. Lord,
0: zombie is a zombie fort.
1: It is a zombie fort. It is, in fact, a zombie factory. Um, it used to be a military facility uh, during the last war, which was the war that sort of created the Mornlands, this, like, magic radio uh, radioactive fallout zone. Uh, But now it's this zombie factory that King Caius uses to fund his other operations by selling zombie armies to people. And so the the players pull up out front the gates and there's just no one there except the undead. And then finally Orvis the cleric, like his head sort of pops up over the battlements and uh, he goes like, oh, oh, uh, come in. You know, he gets the zombies to turn a big wheel and the gates open and then he goes down to greet them and uh Orvis is a little messed up as well because he lives so close to the moorlands so as a weird sort of characteristic he has a small third arm growing out of his breastbone and and uh so Orvis greets the players and they're like King Caius sent us here and you know the Baron Zorlin sent us here saying that we'd be able to get passage uh, through the Mornlands and that you might be our escort. And Orvis is like, oh, yeah, well, I'm afraid that uh, they have an ulterior motive. The house Deneath in Dargan, on the other side of the Mornland ordered a battalion of 500 zombie soldiers to be delivered directly. Ah. And, and King Caius sends the undead through the Mornland because the dead don't rot in the mornland, So you can keep the zombies fresh when they're in transit and orvis also says like he suspects that Caius sees this as like a weird form of branding where he's like oh yeah my dead don't rot man you'll find no decomposition by the time they arrive so uh there they start you know they look at the map and they start planning their route uh the trip through the moorland takes two days and the plan is to follow this old pre-war overland trade route uh orvis draw you know, he says like, and you know, don't worry about this. I used to do the the trip across the moorland with my father. Like I must have done it dozens of times before he died. And Mervyn goes, like, Well, how many times have you done it without your dad? And Orvis goes, Oh never, but don't worry, he's coming with us because his dad is a zombie oh now. Oh
0: my god.
1: <laughs> Orvis's dad is named are rules. So Orvis and did Norvis. Did you write are, all of this? This is all yeah, just you?
0: Man, this rules. <laughs>
1: I'm glad you like that, um, so yeah, Orvis uh, replaces their cart with a fortified coach. he puts a big cask of goodberry wine in it, the only curative potion that works in the mornland uh and they all get suited up and and by the like the light of day, they set out with this horde of five hundred zombies following behind them in military ranks and uh so the mornland the ground the first thing you notice is that the ground is really weird it's like squishy and spongy even though it looks like sand
0: oh, man it's um, creep
1: yeah it is it's a lot like the creep and the trees the further in they get the more the trees start looking like these like fleshy sea anemones that do you guys are, uh, or,
0: or do you ever play uh starcraft much
1: i've played starcraft i'm not like a diehard player but i know enough about it
0: because because uh the zerg when they build their buildings it spreads creep yeah it's the gross stuff they build on
1: that like brown muck or uh, purple like purple muck kind
0: right? of it's like almost like purple scales on the ground yeah
1: yeah um so yeah the moorland is all like spongy the trees look like fleshy anemones that sway as though they're underwater and uh As they move forward, first they see all these scattered bones around. Because the Mornland is like a former battlefield. So first they see all these scattered bones. But then uh, as the trip goes on, they start seeing more and more corpses that are not decomposed at all. So like these ancient dead soldiers that look like they were killed just moments before because of the magic that prevents decay.
0: Can I do a weird tangent? Yeah. There's a Dragon Magazine that uh, I remember reading when I was younger. Uh, they were doing a review for a, a Call of Cthulhu project, a, a, a product that I think was called Horror on the Orient Express. Basically, you get on a train and it goes to a creepy Lovecraftian nightmare world. Um, but I just remember being like so stricken as a kid by like the descriptions of what you see out the windows when the train goes through the like nightmare world. And one of the things that always stuck with me is there's trees that, from the branches instead of leaves, there are human hands hanging off, and That's the human awesome. and the human hands are weeping milk from their fingers, oh. which is like the most fucked up image I've ever seen. Is like a fucked up tree with human hands that are spewing milk. Um, yeah, that would be in the warlands.
1: That's great. I'd have it too, like as they watch, one of the hands falls off the tree like a fruit falling to the ground. And then when it lands, it starts it crawling away. away. It's a crawling claw.
0: Yeah. That's dope.
1: So they start seeing all these, these corpses of former fallen warriors that haven't decomposed in like a century or two. And uh as they're getting sort of more and more into the Mournland and the the border and Fort Zombie have like disappeared into the fog behind them. So they're like right in the thick of it now. Um, they're surveying their surroundings. They're all on high alert because they totally expect weird stuff to be happening. And across the plains, they catch sight of these clusters of gelatinous polyhedrons, not just gelatinous cubes, but all different shapes bounding along like bouncing and rolling moving from like rover to
0: hmm? like rover
1: yeah a lot like rover it's like a cross between rover from cubes, the
0: prisoner for those who don't know you should look it up kids
1: man and the original prisoner please not the remake um yeah it's like a, a cross between rover a gelatinous cube and dnd dice Basically. I bet
0: I could make a remake of the prisoner that doesn't suck. It's called Bloodshot Panopticon.
1: Oh. <laughs> um, at this point, I was using. I had bought a uh, a whiteboard. I still have the whiteboard. In fact, it's hanging on my wall in front of me. I'm using it more like a bulletin board now. Um, but I had bought a whiteboard and some dry erase markers so that I could do some basic battle maps. And the gelatinous polyhedrons, of course, I just use D&D dice to represent them. And uh, it, it has to be like the colored, transparent ones. So these, this, this uh, what do you call it? A pack, a herd of gelatinous polyhedrons is bounding along. And as the players watch, a they notice... A bowl of
0: gelatinous polyhedrons. A bowl. <laughs> it's like a cauldron yes, of bats. The...
1: Is there a plural noun for gelatinous cubes? A cluster of gelatinous cubes? I like a the s- idea of a
0: bowl. It just makes me think of like a little bowl of jello, a bowl sh- of Jell-O. shaking, a little vibrating there.
1: <laughs> so they notice that the polyhedrons are moving from corpse to corpse, and the corpse will sort of get absorbed, and all the flesh will be dissolved off of it, and then the polyhedron will bounce away. And after a moment the bones sizzle and then the corpse begins to regenerate returning to that first moment of the soldier's death in this constant cycle so the instant his soul was gone from his body the, the corpse returns to that state and the players are all like Ugh, it's really distressing and then overhead they you know I loved the moorlands like I was just so excited to finally run an adventure here because there's there's lots of resources uh the Everon campaign guide has We've done a
0: tavern pick about it before as well yeah exactly I the think, everon uh, campaign guy has it and I particu- uh, I just want to shout out like I particularly like the way that they kind of blundered into this trip to the moorlands like I recently played in that game where my friend has sort of, like, Eberron as a part of his setting, and we went into the mornlands and, like, the thing was, it was really hyped up, you know? We got special gas masks and stuff, and uh, pills to stop us from bleeding extra bad or something. I can't remember what the hell it was. Um, point is, like, I think there's something to be said for doing this thing where they're like, oh, more lands. Uh, OK, whatever. And just throwing them in and then like, yeah, this 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 is fun. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I, I I really liked I, I didn't want it to be like a death sentence because they're going into this bizarre place. So I was like, what's the, uh, like, what's my, the... like
0: my like my award winning module trapped in the Underdark forever.
1: <laughs> but what's the best way to prevent it from being a death sentence it's not to buff up the players it's to give them an army of zombies that they're escorting but that's also sort of a double-edged sword because they can't they don't want to lose any of the zombies otherwise the the delivery will be subpar um so overhead the clouds are like boiling and shifting sometimes they take on these vivid shapes of like horses or shields or severed limbs and the light that shines through the clouds is distorted in these psychedelic hues and they make kaleidoscope patterns on the ground the whole place is totally trippy and so the first big encounter that they have is uh it starts to rain and uh it the way it's the way the rain is announced uh nikdo and kolathoth are driving the coach that they're all in and suddenly an arrow falls from the sky and just embeds itself in the bench next to next to Nikto. And he looks up and it's just a rain of arrows that are coming down. And so immediately like they pull the coach to to a halt. Nikto gets inside and they're hearing like this rattling of, as all these arrows hit the coach and uh, Jalen realizes that uh, Rotstench, his zombie uh, manticore, is just getting pummeled by arrows. So he's like, I'm going to risk it. I got to get out there and see if I can like make sure that Rotstench doesn't completely die. So he darts out of the coach and the arrows start hitting him. But the weird thing is that when the arrows start hitting Jalen... Uh, they change from arrows to like this thick viscous liquid. So when they hit his skin, the arrow just dissolves and becomes this like goop that starts covering him. And he watches in horror as the goop starts materializing eyeballs on the surface of his skin. And he's able to like wipe some of them off. But what wound up happening is he wound up with an eye on the back of his hand because he stood out in the rain for too long, so suddenly he's got, like, a weird... That
0: rules!
1: ...and weird new eye on the back of one of his hands. So, this happens, like, he... He manages to prevent Rot Stench from dying, but then he runs back inside the the coach and is, like, horrified by this new development, and everybody's like, oh my god, what have we gotten ourselves into? And uh, they wait, and the rain eventually stops and they get out and the outside of their coach is now covered in arrows and eyeballs. <laughs> and so they try to clear it off as best they can, but now they have this like weird, uh, like I'm trying to think of the artist. It's almost like sort of a, a Geiger slash a Dolly mashup of this weird coach covered in arrows and eyes. It's like a, a multi-eyed hedgehog or something and uh they start proceeding but because they were stopped for so long and they have all these zombies that are now covered in like arrows and eyes themselves um and orvis is like don't worry we can we can find a way to get rid of those once we get through this but because they had stopped for as long as they did with all these undead they attracted the attention of all the gelatinous polyhedrons so there was a fight where suddenly they're surrounded by the gelatinous polyhedrons and they have to kill a few of them, like engage in combat, and then just make a break for it. And they they leaned on the zombies a lot, where they were having Orvis, you know, send a whole bunch of zombies to sort of overwhelm and tear apart these gelatinous shapes. Uh, and thankfully, uh, the zombies have a certain degree of immunity because the gelatinous shape much like the corpses strewn on the ground, will absorb one of the zombies, dissolve it, and then when it leaves, the zombie will become restored by the Mournland magic. Uh, So that was the first encounter, and they proceed onwards, and uh, there's one more encounter that they had, and it was uh, after a few hours, they pass by this area known as the Glowing Chasm. It is indeed just like a big chasm that glows with sort of this radiant purple magic light and it has a hypnotic effect. So if you stare into the light too long, you become entranced. And Gabriel made the mistake of staring into the light too long and he failed his uh what was it? It's like either a fortitude I think it must have been a fortitude save or a will save. Failed his will save. And he found himself drawn to it.
0: These days.
1: Yeah. Yeah to be sure. And so he he failed his will save he found himself drawn to it and so he started he like got out of the coach and just started walking towards it and as he was walking towards it he noticed that there was this weird sort of optical effect where if you look at something if you looked at these things head-on they were invisible but as he passed them he noticed that there were all these strange glass sculptures like jagged glass sculptures that had clearly been Either monsters or people at some point turned to glass and only visible from certain angles. And he's like, "Oh, that's really strange," but oh well. I'm just, he's just like attracted to this light, and the other players start chasing after him. And uh, then one of them—I can't remember who—notices like this shimmer in the air, like something's moving, it, like the predator in with his invisibility mode oh, activated,
0: like me in and, Fortnite.
1: So something's like moving around them and uh, all too late they realize that it is a half glass illithid as it grabs Orvis and starts eating his brains and so this happens and all the zombies go berserk they just start scattering attacking things as their controller is eaten by this half invisible illithid and the players start freaking out and there's a a huge combat encounter happens thankfully it was balanced enough that uh an illithid wasn't totally like a, a total detriment to to them they managed to best it but it's this difficult thing i believe trying to think of who it was i think it was gabriel had the uh the blind fighting feat, so he was able to fight the illithid without seeing it and being a paladin, he also had, uh, just sort of had an edge on fighting against something so blatantly evil. Um, but yeah, it was this big battle map encounter where a semi-invisible foe wants to eat their brains and control their minds, and they manage to best it and, like, take a second to recover, and during that moment when they're, like, catching their breath, trying to recover, and uh, Jalen and Nikto have some degree of necromantic powers, obviously from having a zombie uh, manticore mount. So they're able to, like, herd all the zombies back into the military ranks, and they realize, like, oh god, we cannot stay here a moment longer. Like, we don't have time to rest. So they load back up onto the coach, you know, go, yeah, and, and take off and get all the zombies marching behind them, and... As they're driving away, Alandair is like, "So I don't mean to be a downer, but do you? Does anyone know exactly where we're going?" And so they have to get out the map and and sort of try to trace the route that Orvis was leading them on. And the adventure and the campaign ended with them just like trudging off deep into the Mornland. They weren't even Lost halfway the through Mournland. it. Yeah, they basically got lost in the Mornland with an army it's basically of basically the start of
0: a whole new campaign.
1: It really could have been like you could run, you could easily run a whole campaign in the Mornland. I frankly, I should at some point because it there's just so much material to draw upon. And you can get really crazy and weird. Uh, it's such a deviation from standard D and D because standard D and D is you know sort of a Tolkien style of fantasy where. It's all vaguely based on like medieval England and there's magic, but there's not too much magic and magic is often used either in fights or just for fun illusions. Uh, but the Mornland is just like turn everything upside down. All the weird stuff you can think of. That's what we're going to do. I'm glad you Coming liked of uh, some of the trees. details there.
0: <laughs> I really like the stuff about the zombie factory. That's great
1: generate a bunch of zombies and then march them through the moorland because they don't deteriorate
0: yeah that uh man hell of a way to end it i wonder what i'm gonna cook up for the next for the next one
1: yeah at least it went out on a high note and yeah i can't wait to hear what uh what you cook up for our next episode and i'll share my thoughts on what I was gonna do, and uh, maybe we can also figure out what campaign I'm gonna describe next. And yeah. you know, it's it's funny because even though this one is incomplete, it still ran the usual twelve chapters that I, I make my campaigns last. So
0: solid stuff. I guess it,
1: yeah, I guess in a way it works out.
0: I got Operation Larval Door and the way this starts is you see I don't think I have too much to talk about here I think this is going to be pretty quick but we'll see start first thing that happens so we got to jump back a bit to something I talked about in a previous episode when they got to hell and they were sort of getting their instructions there was they were given the information that they were being sent to hell with One of their objectives being they had to investigate the loyalty of a former MPOC agent known as Vald, who was uh, basically a devil who worked for the MPOC as like an armorer, but then had transferred to uh, Mephistar at some point due to the alliance between Mephisto and the MPOC. And so when the players were sent to hell this time, uh coyote had or not coyote al al samasath had given them the instructions of like vald's been in mephistar for a long time and we suspect that his loyalty may have shifted to mephisto rather than the empok and so we want you to look into that while you're in hell um but right at the beginning of this new session operation larval door so you know, the players have been doing jobs for the former member of MPOC's finest, Alistair Infernus, who is now a uh, professor at the School of Hellfire in Mephistar. Um, They've been hunting down these, like, Nightside Eclipse infiltrators. Um, They're on the, they're on the case, like, they're trying to figure out who is behind this Nightside Eclipse infiltration and what they're motives are uh or or what their you know final plot is one thing to keep in mind is that in the previous campaign of Empox finest like when they chased uh the night side eclipse leader mourner out of hell he, they chased him out of hell and directly into a major assault on uh the northern capital of austin so like there there is some pressure here to like figure out what they're up to before they can initiate their plan theoretically but um at the beginning of this session mephisto asked the players to go meet with them so that he can give them their briefing on like what the late what the latest on like the night side eclipses activities in hell seems to be what the leads are um but mephisto just like fully lays out to them basically that while they have been given this objective to check in on Vald, he says, that's not why you're really here. He says, basically, um, first of all, he says, Vald does work for me. He's effectively one of my agents. Now he's not really working for the MPOC, but that is not what you have been sent here for. You were told that that is like one of the reasons you're here, but it's not. And what Mephisto tells the party is that the real reason that they have been sent to Cania, uh, the primary reason, is because they are effectively on loan as agents to Mephisto in exchange for Mephisto to uh, give Coyote, or or not Coyote. I keep screwing that up because Coyote's the handler in the current campaign that i'm running but uh-huh. he mephisto says that basically al has made this deal with him where the al's aces are going to work for him and drive out these nightside eclipse infiltrators and in exchange al and the Empok is going to receive a huge shipment of insomnium and mephisto does not say why they want it he he doesn't say like anything more than that but he just says you know the real reason you are here is effectively to make good on like a to hold up al's end of a huge drug deal with my circle of hell and i
1: was gonna say there's been a lot of insomnium the past few uh sessions that you've described and i was hoping like it's gonna pay off in a huge way are they gonna drug a bunch of people with insomnia or something along those lines
0: well at now at this point like it hasn't been said to them but the players are effectively thinking to themselves i remember like they had basically started to discuss amongst themselves like is al just an insomnium addict like what what is his actual motive here like we've figured out already been asking
1: this stuff since the beginning what's the motivation of the mpoc what's the we, motivation of al
0: well i mean where's the, the is motivation, odium? <laughs> yeah that's that's the thing the motivation of the mpoc before al takes charge is clear it's to stop the spread of the Nightside eclipse but now that al's in charge and we've established that he's not the original leader oh the original leader odium is missing he's kind of beleaguered this idea that he would then uh like go into this major drug deal with an arch devil, it like kind of shakes the faith of the players a bit. Again, it's like, it's not certain. It's, it's, it's not like Mephisto said, Oh yeah, he's addicted to insomnium and he wants all this insomnium, but he has told them enough that they're like, and they're kind of paranoid now as well because they've started to turn a bit evil. And so like there's that element of like, sort of self-interest and paranoia that they're like, well, did he lie to us? Did he trick us? What's going on here? And so suddenly we have this element of uncertainty. Um, But Mephisto tells them this and he says like, that is basically just, I'm going to lay this all out for them. Obviously he is playing sort of a long game here as well because he is he's not an inherently honest guy. He's an arch devil. Um, his reasons for sowing distrust among the characters with their own leader is like very sort of diabolical in nature. Um, but having laid all that out, he says now back to work then. So, so here's your actual briefing for this one. Um, at this point, The situation we we talked about last time they ran into some wild devils at the end of the encounter uh, who were dealing with the Nightside Eclipse. Basically devils that had retreated, like run off into the wastes of Cania, which is this huge frozen hellscape of glaciers and stuff. And then they are sort of like, they've formed their own sort of wild devil tribes out in the wastes that like harass the more loyal like the loyalist uh forces of mephisto and like the mines and whatnot and so mephisto says like obviously we need to teach them a lesson because they've started working with extraplanar allies like the nightside eclipse which i have i i can't have um so uh also there have recently been a number of disappearances in the canyon waste and so uh basically coordinating like like putting all this together mephisto is like so we have to go deal with these unruly wild devils out in the canyon glaciers but we have an idea of where you need to go to find them because of like where the disappearances have been basically Um, and the disappearances of course have just been a combination of like weak devils and also like people who are effectively prisoners of hell uh, as punishment for their deeds in life um so there was again they get a little free imp guide who gives them little pointers probably tells them uh, don't steal it's haunted that sort of thing um <laughs> i've been and, waiting uh, for
1: a good opportunity to work it's haunted don't steal into the current D D game that i'm running with some
0: friends oh man it's it's a classic it's, it's haunted, haunted don't, don't, don't steal. steal um and, uh, but yeah, I had, uh, I got some fun little doodles on the page here with the notes, but, um, there are a few interesting encounters, uh, I did here again, this is also, uh, based on, a like, a adventures league module. Uh, so this is one actually, it's like, you have to go out and there's like a bunch of tribes of lizard men, I think have been kidnapping people, something like that. Um, let's see, sorry, I'm blanking on the name, but I'll find it later. Uh, the point is, uh, there's a bunch of, this is one thing that I actually, I I wanted to talk about this is that these D and D adventures league modules and, and the published campaigns in general, I would say, particularly the earlier ones, because they hadn't sort of like refined them as much. I feel like these early adventures have way too much travel time. Like, you know, the Horde of the Dragon Queen has a travel time point where it's like just endless rolls on the, on a table of like encounter after encounter. Oh, there's hobgoblins. Oh, there's a giant. Oh, there's a thing. And it's just like, it's like, can we please Ah, get to the thing?
1: Yes. Skip to the good stuff.
0: Can we please get to the thing that we're trying to do? And so I did like, you know, I'm always trying to make the most of what they give me. And so part of that was like having this adventure be sort of a trek across the canyon wastes, Um, as opposed to what it is in its original form. uh, And the adventure is called Drums in the Marsh. But, you know, you go, you spend so much time traveling and deciding how you want to get there just to get to where the lizard men are, where the disappearances have been happening in this module. Because it's like, you know, and and this happens in a lot of these, like, especially in the first season, these modules, like, they'll have the part that I want, and then beforehand there's just to pad things out, like an extra part that's like, oh, to get to the site of the adventure, do you go by foot or by river? If you go by river, you're attacked by... Uh, some piranhas and squids if you go by land you get attacked by some bandits and rogues and it's just like like you know i always try and find a way to make that encounter more interesting if i can or i try to uh but it's you know it's it's an annoying part of the design of these early uh modules i find that like was kind of a trend in, in 5e and so... Um, they love
1: to throw in those random encounters.
0: Well, and I mean, I, I've done it in my modules, but I make sure that the tables are a lot tighter and like everything that comes up is something that would be interesting.
1: Right. Um, I only ever really run uh, random encounters when it seems like my players are ripping through the material too quickly. Or I'm like, oh man, like I budgeted an hour to you know, get them from point A to point B, but they're. it looks like they're going to get there in 20 minutes. So let's run a couple of random encounters along the way.
0: Um, so what I did take from this, uh, adventure is I kept, uh, there's a run in with a giant goat at one point. I like the idea that you're going through hell in the icy wastes, and then you just find a giant goat. That's kind of a mean customer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, big ass, big ass, woolly horned devil goat. It's great. I like it. Um, that is great. It, I, you know, I, you
1: know, I, it's I, uh, encounters with giant animals underrated.
0: I mean, it. I, I like I like this because it's just like it's kind of out of the it's out of the middle of nowhere. It's like, oh, it's a devil. It's a hell goat. Um, I uh, this reminds me of a story. Um, back back in the day me and my good friend scott we went to uh iceland back in the day i i've been to iceland and we took a trip up to the old viking parliament there the althing which was where all the different tribes and chieftains and uh lawyers because they were very litigious uh in medieval iceland <laughs> oddly enough um they would go and like air their grievances and whatnot and and it was actually the site, you know, obviously every once in a while, things would kind of boil over at the place where the grievances were aired and everybody brings all their armies basically. And so like there have been battles at the Althing and that was really amazing to see is like be at that ancient valley and see the places where the battles happened that I've read about and been like, man, and there's law rock where they fucking used to yell at each other until they had to duel to the death. Um, But the reason I'm saying all this is that we got to the owl thing. uh, So we decided to bike there. This is an embarrassing story for me because, um, you know, we, we stayed at this great hostel in in Reykjavik that had all these amazing uh, features that were included with the hostel. And one of the features was they had all these bikes that you could rent. Like you could just rent a bike from the hostel, and it was like covered with your collateral with the hostel. So like, whatever, and, um, so we went on a bike ride to the Althing, thing, which I used to bike when I was like younger, but I had not biked recently enough at all to prepare myself for like an actual cross country bike ride. And so like foolishly, I had thought it would be just like riding a bike, um, but actually my legs turned to jelly and it would it took us a long time to get there because i just like destroyed my legs and by the end like he was literally my buddy was literally like dragging me <laughs> oh, wow. anyways how
1: how far was it
0: oh man i i don't know reykjavik to the althing uh i guess i can look it up how far from reykjavik to Yeah, the
1: then you got to spell Reykjavik.
0: Yeah, i got to spell Althing all weird with a thor um, situated approximately 45 kilometers east of what later became the country's capital, Reykjavik.
1: That's uh, that's quite the trek.
0: I remember, uh, we stopped uh, at a at like a roadside KFC there, and I got to have Icelandic KFC, and that was a fun experience. Um, all the the man, there's so many cr- like Iceland is basically a crazy fantasy world, like. Um, you, you're out in the fields and there's like fields of moss that are like, like a giant mattress. Like you could just lie down in the field and the moss would just be so soft that you could just sleep there. Um, there's streams that you can get water from like, like fresh water, but then you drink it and it tastes like blood cause it's full of iron. Um, <laughs> they got, uh, there's all these rocks that are just sort of standing by themselves that the Icelanders believe have elves inside them that like the elves live in the rocks basically. So you gotta be I saw that
1: in that chilling movie, with Eurovision. The rocks.
0: Yeah. And um yeah and man, and there's a rock in Reykjavik that like has been there for like the longest time and they tried to get rid of it to like do construction in that area and nobody could break the rock and now it's like like a cultural heritage point is like no one would ever allow anyone to ever break that rock. <laughs> the
1: unbreakable rock. That's cool. Um, That's a, you know what that is? That's the setup for an adventure right there. Like a D and D adventure. There's an unbreakable rock, but it cracked. What does it mean?
0: So the thing is we got to, uh, the owl thing and I was like dead and I was like, Oh my God, how are we ever going to get back? And we got there so late that there were no, buses going back to Reykjavik from there they they stop really early it turns out and so we went to this really nice like sort of like chateau inn and restaurant at the Al thing and I got super drunk on screwdrivers and I was like all right let's let's bike on back to Reykjavik and like fairly immediately my drunken power like failed me and and it wasn't gonna work out um but early on when i was very drunk and we were biking away from the owl thing we ran into on the side of the road some wild goats a bunch of wild goats and i drunkenly huh. chased them around in a field and scott <laughs> said scott said tom stop drunkenly chasing around those goats because i don't want to have to tell your family that you were drunkenly killed by goats while we were in iceland <laughs>
1: You know, there are there are worse uh fates. They're less they, appropriate fates they were tini- for Tom Lando's end.
0: They were tiny goats, and also that would have been hilarious. Yeah, it would have R. been. R. I. P.
1: Tom Lando, killed by goats. I could see it.
0: Um, anyways, uh big ups to Scott for pulling me through there. Also the happy ending of that story is that um So we, we were like going along the side of the road and we had so far to go and it was like dark at that point. And, uh, there's this guy who does free walking tours through Reykjavik, or he did, uh, named Jonas at the time, Jonas and, and, uh, Jonas had told us he had like assured the whole tour group that basically like the crime, like, like crime rates in Iceland are so low that like, you should feel totally safe hitchhiking everywhere. Like the idea of being afraid to hitchhike is not a thing in Iceland and like, is a great way to get around. And at that point we were like, Hey, maybe Jonas was right. Maybe we should hitchhike. And Scott was like, but like, how are we going to get the bikes back? Like who the hell's going to help us carry these bikes and like help us hitchhike. And then literally like, I was like, well, let's just try it. Let's just throw up our thumbs at like the next thing that comes. And, and literally the next truck. thing that come, it wasn't a pickup truck. It was a guy who had a, tra- had like a trailer for his, uh, snowmobile. Cause he'd just come back from ah. the glaciers with his family. And like, he had been with some friends in the glaciers and he was just on his way back to Reykjavik. And so this older guy like hitched up our bikes to his, is snowmobile trailer and then gave us a ride back to Reykjavik and that's uh, awesome yeah man Iceland Iceland was so great Damn, dude. it's that's so pretty wild cool. although I will say it's it's a wildly expensive place uh Jonas who I will also say is like I remember some of his tour was like fairly politically incorrect and like he'd probably be canceled by now if he was given <laughs> free walking <laughs> tours. Um, just, you know, the kind of thing that he's like too casual about talking about the acts of rape that the Vikings committed. Um, but, uh, the, the thing is he, his whole thing was like this idea that, the modern Viking is inherently lazy, but he's smart enough to know that he can make people come to him, and then he can rob them. And that's the entire basis of Iceland's economy is uh, just like people come to Reykjavik and pay way more than they should uh, for I- literally I everything. I see. I he's see. <laughs> like he's he's like you know people say uh, oh we're an island nation, so it's har- so hard to bring stuff in. But I mean, I've had liquor from europe that is cheaper here than it is when i got it in europe (laughs) like like it's or or like you know what i'm trying to say is like basically it doesn't match is like he's like well why is it not expensive on the mainland like whatever anyway so uh yeah that's my story about iceland and also uh giant goat in the canyon waste reminds me of chasing around almost some goats. almost
1: dying from
0: goats i mean that's yeah man good good place though that country anyway um so there's a run-in with a giant goat uh they're traveling the wastes with an imp guide and then eventually they get ambushed by wild devils um they run into a bunch of uh wild devil Basically, what I'm slowly revealing as they get closer to the wild devils is that um, these wild devils, like, they've been captured. There's been these disappearances, and the reason is that these wild devils have been, like, raiding groups of, like, like chain gangs of, like, miners and stuff that are attended by weak devils, like imps and stuff, and then they are enslaving the prisoners and the devils to work for the wild devils uh, in their waste. And so, basically, like... They're running into what are effectively wild devil slavers. Uh, First, they run into an ambush that um, is like 10 wild devils, but then once half of them are defeated, they run away. Um, Then another giant animal encounter. I had them run into uh, three giant toads. Uh, who would flee once they took enough damage but i had these great i have a i have a great little doodle of the giant goat and the giant toad which i'll i'll put up uh (laughs) for the supplements but the giant goat or or the giant toad i'm very proud of the drawing i did of him that's just like he's all he's all bumpy and warty and he's got a long slimy tongue and he looks kind of like almost uh he's so he's so big and almost like almost kind of like a fat humanoid kind of thing. Um, and I just like the idea that like, they're going through these wild parts of hell and there's just some giant nasty animals that run, they run into and have to contend with. Um, I also have a doodle of the party at this point, which, uh, you know, I'm able to confirm that like at this point, Arakendor Kendor, he's got his, uh, his rebreather mask, his helm of telepathy, uh, or or no, not helm of- telepathy, his helm of comprehend languages uh he's got um his i think he's got pyro armor, so like heavy armor that's fire resistant uh he has a big maul and he has uh, a a or, or a big warhammer I can't remember if it's a wall or a warhammer and then he has a big shield, but then we've got like Nestle has her ghillie suit and her cloak and her trioptics and her rebreather and then she also has a revolver and then uh and then Chessie uh she has a rapier and she has her cloak and everything and uh all her equipment and everything. So that's all neat. A little update on where the party's at. Uh after running into the giant toads they ran into a group of actual like uh slavers which included uh fifteen wild devils uh and a wild devil shaman and also there were 10 slaves uh five humans and five goblins and the shaman i gave a special ability which i uh from this point on started using a lot actually i don't know i may have even given it to some monsters or or npc enemies in the modules that i've written but um basically so there's the warlock attack eldritch blast your go-to warlock attack 1d 10 force damage it's solid there's all these invocations which are little warlock bonus abilities that you can get which improve it in some way so you can get eldritch spear which uh increases its range to be super far you can get eldritch uh i think it's like eldritch push or something and it basically makes it so that when you eldritch blast people they get pushed back uh, the very popular one is Agonizing Blast, which adds your Charisma bonus to the damage. But I created um, for my games, and I definitely pitched it to Goblin Press at some point, um, the idea of an an additional invocation modification of uh, Eldritch Blast that I gave this, the I think this was the first time I used it, was on this uh, Wild Devil Shaman was a mod a, a version of it called eldritch snakes where basically instead of doing a series of eldritch blasts you do uh, a shorter range eldritch blast that has a grappling effect if it hits and basically the idea is your eldritch blast becomes like ethereal snakes that you shoot out of your hands and you grab someone with them cool yeah i was very very pleased with myself for designing this thing and it's something that i continued to use for a long time like i feel like the idea of an eldritch blast that grapples is like just like restrain would be maybe a bit too far because restraint is like very debilitating but grappling just like holds a person in place and i like the idea of like you know grabbing someone with your warlock attack having it like reach out and grab them
1: get over here
0: hey yeah there we go we brought it all back um so they dealt with the slavers and they freed the slaves although like freed the slaves the thing is they're still working for mephisto and at this point they're <laughs> basically like turning them back into prisoners of hell um but the finale of this uh adventure, um, and this is the way it ends in the original publication i believe as well is basically the players get to a point where there is like a big three-way battle of the lizard men that they are hunting down it's like there is a fight for supreme oh no you know what i'm remembering now actually is i think that in the module the players run into some like, Bullywugs or something. I I think they run into a faction that is against the Lizardmen, and then it ends with sort of, like, a big civil war between the Lizardmen where the players have to sort of, like, back one side against the sort of tyrant that is responsible for the disappearances and the, like, slaving and everything. Um, But whatever the case, I kept that as being, like, when they get to the Wild Devils, they are literally, like, they've all they've got all these slaves, but they've all started fighting over who should get the lion's share of them. And so I have this big fight of like 11 wild devils versus 11 wild devils versus 11 wild devils. But then the real main fight that the players are engaged in while that battle is happening around them is they fight um, another shaman accompanied by three wild devils and the wild devil King uh, who was basically just like, you know, a a boss monster for the, uh, encounter. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and that was basically it. The, the only thing is that, um, you know, they, uh, open up like, like they, their slave pens, which they, uh, open up and free all the slaves from, but again, they're just like free to go back to Mephistar and toil as prisoners of hell. Um, but then, uh, for the next operation, the thing is that the players are going to be sent on the hunt for the person who responsible this at last. And we don't, I, I can't tell you too much. I can give you a hint, maybe a hint of sorts as to who it is. Cause I already asked who you thought it might be. Um, but they're going by the name. They're going to be sent on the hunt for someone called the Prairie Hag.
1: Oh, oh, uh, oh! What's her name? Uh, Carmen.
0: Okay, now that is you. I think that you are the fu- the thing that's funny about that is I think either that is a very clever guess or you accidentally guessed it because. So there was Carmen the Immortal, Nervosa right. the Field Hag, and Slayeth got, the War Witch. the War Witch? And you were I, thinking I can, the Field Hag, I but I you said Carmen, Carmen. the Field
1: Hag. Yeah.
0: But the fact is, you're right. It is Carmen. Carmen is Aww, the new snap. Prairie Hag. So to go back, Carmen the Immortal was in hell. The nightside eclipse sprung her out to help her with their help them with her their invasion of uh Austin in northern Drail. The players chased them out. They ca- they killed Mourner and captured Carmen the Immortal. They turned Carmen the Immortal over to Nervous the Field Hag for information on how to beat Wold and the Screech Owls. Um and in order to get her help they had to make a sacrifice so they sacrificed Carmen the immortal ah. later in the end of Empok's Finest they encountered a, encountered a coven and discovered that Nervosa, Carmen, and Selaeth were all in a coven together working against them and now Carmen is back as Nervosa's protege the prairie hag to the field hag and the hunt is on
1: i'm just Carmen's stoked back that i hell. bumbled my way into answering
0: it nightside eclipse in hell it's time to chase him out what is going on what is their plot will the players even get them out of here in time who knows
1: find out next time
0: yeah and that's uh that's the that that was operation larval door
1: cool that was a good one and i really liked the aside where you talked about your time in Iceland.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I know one of our listeners, like, I've talked to them about, like, what they most enjoy in the show, and I, they have said that they just enjoy the tangents the most. So, um, you know, oh, it we makes should me just, feel less bad about doing wacky tangents all the time.
1: We should just swerve back to doing Tom Lando stories like we used to.
0: No, nah, I, I need the structure of this. I need to get the <laughs> idea that I'm putting my stories out there for more than just the three people who play them.
1: Well, fair enough.
0: There you go.
1: I'll save my tavern thing for next time.
0: Man, uh, I mean, we've gone for a half hour, or, or for a half hour, an hour and a half, and uh, we did a, a fair bit of, uh, you know, just chatting up at the beginning there. Um, so I don't... I have a, a tavern pick, but I don't really... Feel like I should bring up that tavern pick so much as I just want to bring up just a thought that I've been having. And that is, um, you know, we've talked previously about the idea of like why we DM, like what motivates us as DMs when we are engaging in this process. Like, is it that we're trying to tell a specific kind of story? Are we trying to explore? an idea are we trying like should our campaigns have a message or what have you like what is what is sort of the core motivator and uh you know one of the interesting things is that you are very much you know you you sort of decide what you're going to run when the time comes to run it like you you ask your players and sort of figure out what they're in the mood for um and one of the things that occurred to me is, I'm not sure how much this this influences my desire or, or my my approach to DMing, but I think it de- definitely does have a bearing on it. Is just the desire of like, I I, I imagine also that that you sort of get this like or or have felt this as we do this podcast is like, I don't know. Do you feel like doing this podcast has made you feel like you get that impulse more often that like, Ooh, I'd like to run a game like that.
1: Uh, you know, it's, it certainly gets my brain primed to run some D D like when we started doing this, I was kind of on a hiatus from D D because I just didn't have the mental energy at the start of the pandemic to, run a bunch of stuff and come up with original ideas. But as we do the podcast and like revisit old ideas and I hear about what you've run, it definitely inspires me and gives me some ideas to be like, Oh yeah, it would be cool to, to run something like that. And ultimately I guess in part the podcast resulted in me running these little mini campaigns with my friends Uh, even though they're kind of constructed of my greatest hits of previously run adventures uh, it's still fun to repackage them put a new spin on them and and explore the game further so yeah in a nutshell yeah i do think it has gotten me back into it
0: and definitely like those greatest hits like you have them close to hand even more so now because you've been we've been revisiting them for the podcast yeah um but the thing that has jumped out to me is like, you know, I am the type of person who is always like, like, it's so dangerous for me to have a huge trunk full of old dragon magazines and white Dwarfs because I can look at like, man, I, th- this is the thing is that when I was a kid in elementary school, I had a subscription to PC gamer. And my interest in those magazines was that like every video game like every page of that magazine that described a video game had screenshots of a video game uh advertised a video game whatever each one of those showed a sort of like potential to me that like I collected those magazines not because of a desire like a journalistic desire to know about these video games but out of a childhood desire to just imagine what every video game on every page of each magazine might be like. And oh, yeah. that's like how I entertain myself a lot. And that sort of bug that I have, um, I say it's dangerous to have that trove of RPG magazines because literally any one page of any one of those magazines can tend, like make me want to do an entire campaign. Like, like, you know, can totally inspire me like, oh man, this one idea for this monster, what if I did this? What if I did this? And just like, you know, it's it's part of the reason why I talk about, you know, having the structure where I base my games off of metal albums because if I just, if I didn't have a specific list of things that I was basing the parts of my game off of, I'd have like option paralysis. I'd be like, man, what, right. do, what do I even do? Like, I it's like having the metal albums to draw inspiration from is similar to having every page of the magazines to draw inspiration from is like, you know, I, I, I always need something in front of me to sort of go off of. Otherwise I'm just going to be totally lost in my head of like all the different possibilities.
1: But, you know, I used, I used to do the same thing when I was a kid at the video rental place, looking at VHS art especially for like the rated R movies that I wasn't allowed to rent at the time. I spent so much time just looking at those VHS covers and imagining what those movies must've been like.
0: Like the, the ESRB mature rating, definitely like I share that sense of like having that barrier, but also with PC game like, like with games, you know, I loved computer games and I played them all the time as a kid, but I didn't have the money to just like buy a new one all the time. Like now, it, now it's easy because of steam and everything. But back in the day, it was like, you know, I would just marvel at like, what, what is this game? Like, man, what is resident evil? Like, it's got a zombie. It's got a guy with a gun, man. And then in the uh, store, I you go it's to like gone. a
1: computer store and they have the gigantic game boxes that have like a flap on the front that opens up.
0: Well, and of so course much these to old... look at and imagine, these old PC gamers, they would have like, it, it was like centerfold advertisements that were like these huge things that came out of like the most advanced AI strategy game you've ever seen. And it's just like these massive screenshots of huge battles and stuff. Um, oh, and
1: let's not forget about the uh, Coconut Monkey demo CD-ROMs with that like, as well. can play the first level of a dozen games.
0: I feel like we may have talked about this previously because i definitely remember um in addition to the coconut so so i got the demo discs all the time and that, that was like a big part of it for me as well um but coconut monkey there was like a little like hidden passage at the back of every pc gamer for like years that was just like The epic of coconut monkey it was just like all all a bunch of like really overwritten flowery like sort of grand epic writing that would all sort of pertain to coconut monkey in some way or another (laughs) um and i remember discovering it at some point and then looking back through all the issues and being like holy shit there's a passage of this in every issue my god well it's just like hidden at the back anyway um what I was saying is like talking about going through magazines and stuff and like the danger of like how every little thing could potentially send me off on like a desire to do a new campaign. And like, this used to be a problem for me is I used to be fairly undisciplined as a, as a DM. And so I would much more easily like start a game, be like, Oh, let's do this, do a few sessions, then be like, Oh, I'm bored of this. I want to do this now. And like, I have learned to sort of discipline myself out of that, because it leads to, like, much more frustrating, unfinished games, whereas, like, if you have the discipline to stick with a game, especially over the long period of time that it takes to develop, maybe, that tends to be, like, that's what I've experienced with Mbox Finest and stuff, is, like, the slow burn has really paid off of, like, doing a reveal after the course of, like, two sequential campaigns and whatnot. Um, the payoff is, like, it it really... Does it for me, but doing this podcast and the fact that we cover such a large breadth of RPG topics and different RPGs that we talk about, like you know, there was that whole idea of like I want I I want to be a guy who runs a game of Nightbane just because we talked about is there anyone playing Nightbane and I'm like man I hope there you is. You want to keep Fuck, it alive, I want to run you know. I wanna run Metroid or, or I, I wanna run uh mechanoids, I wanna run Superhero Game, I wanna run Bloodshot Panopticon, on and on and on and on. And you know, I think part of my approach to DMing, again, it, I don't think it's the whole part of my approach to DMing, but it is it's like not the whole reason that I DM, but it is definitely uh part of of my DMing process is, like, my desire to just do as many of these things as I can. I know I can't, like, a lot of them I can't do. I just can't find the time. But to some extent, it's like, well, I do want to do that. And, like, maybe I can find the time. Like, this is the sort of thing, this is, like, it takes us back to the the thing I mentioned in the first place of this mini-campaign superhero campaign idea. Is like, well... I don't know. I'm already running my main campaign. I'm running a mini campaign, I'm running a bi-weekly campaign. That's a cyberpunk game. And now I also want to do a superhero mini campaign. And I'm, I'm I'm doing notes on it and I'm working on it. It's like, it's probably what I'm going to do after ashes against the grain. But you know, as I throw myself into this and enjoy doing it, I find myself being like, you know, to what extent, does my DM process just boil down to how can I do the most of the things that I want to <laughs> do? Because I basically want to do all these things that we talk about. I want to do Nightbane. I want to do Rifts. I want to do, uh, you know, Watership Down in Space. I want to do Mechanoid Invasion. I want to do everything. And at some point, part of my like DM's vocation or impulse just breaks down to, man, how can I... Do the how most much of can these I things. Do? Yeah, like, you know, uh, to get dramatic over it, it's like, how can I do the most RPGs of different types that I want to do before I drop dead? <laughs> it's like, before some terrible accident claims my life, it's like, will I have done all the RPGs that I could have when that <laughs> moment happens? Will I get to the pearly then... gates and be like, oh, I never got, never did that Bloodshot Panopticon game? damn
1: it and then as the the goats horns penetrate your heart and your life flashes before your eyes you get to relive every single campaign that you ran
0: man hell of a hell of a cell for doing DMT my friend but uh <laughs> now that that actually the the idea of like like the idea that idea of reliving them I actually don't like that idea. I I mean, as much as <coughs> this podcast is about reliving past campaigns. Yeah,
1: what the heck are we doing? If not, I that? mean,
0: the issue is that like. You know, it's it's all economy of time. It's like, you know. The fact that I did the first, like the fact that I did MPOC's Finest and Alsaces, and it wasn't until late in Alsace's that I did a major reveal about Odium and the MPOC, um, that, that took a long time and it totally paid off. And I'm really glad I did that, but that's done. That's done so that I don't have to spend any more time doing that and I can move on to more things. And so the idea of going back and reliving it is like, no, nah, I already did the thing. If anything, if I want to, if I get to live more campaigns, then I want to live new ones, man.
1: Ah, well, fair. That's
0: what I'm hoping the good place got wrong. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> it's just infinite RPG campaigns. That's what I wanted uh, Westworld to be. Very disappointed. Yeah. Westworld kind of got up its own ass about itself. And I just wanted it to be endless RPG campaigns. I wanted it to be a show about DMs.
1: It really should be. Why don't we have that show?
0: Anyways, that was all just a big sort of think piece on the DMing process, which I think is kind of central to this podcast in general. Um, and I think that is a good place to wrap up the podcast. Did you have any thoughts on that that before we close out?
1: No man, I think you really covered it. Like like do it. If you have an idea, do it. Something actually here's one thing that I can add to it is I've started doing these little mini campaigns with a group of my friends out of Toronto, people who I've never DM'd for, uh so I'm able to run like a lot of my greatest hits, my favorite uh, adventures and stuff and kind of repackage them so that there's a through line plot and my friends are all really gung ho about it. They really love playing. They they are always excited to play again. Uh, it, it does help that there's just not a lot going on right now because of the pandemic. Like right now Toronto is fully locked down, so they just have nothing to do in their evenings. So they're like, we want to play more D and D let's play a bunch of D and D. And, uh, the thing that I realized, cause I'm enjoying it as well is like, what makes it, why, why do we DM, uh, why play D and D it's because it is like the ultimate version of something like a computer game. It is a computer. It is an MMO, but the server is our brains. And,
0: well like and as I a result there's first, there's no, no limit to it's it, a right? serial drama as well it's like it's like you're in a tv show together as well and your character yeah. developments, and like like you can play both the characters you can play both the writer's room and the audience in that you know if something happens and it doesn't make sense you can call it out you can be like oh like you know, I can remind you that you have certain abilities. I can mm-hmm. remind Jess in Ashes Against the Grand, like, oh, you have this psychic ability, so maybe you could use that in this scene. And it's like that, that episode just got better. And but that it's, is something it's that, also
1: yeah. it's also like it's like that it's like a TV series or a movie or a video game. But it's also uh, it follows the rule of improv games, the yes and rule. So if a player suggests something, you can just roll with it. There are no
0: or the no, no big limitations. but rule. Yeah, exactly. I like the no but. That's my D anD D trick.
1: Exactly. Like can, it, there's. It,
0: do we you know, know anything about this wizard? No, but there is a haunted library not far from the town.
1: Precisely, like a video game has has edges of the map. You know, you you can run to the edge of the map on a video game and just hit an invisible wall. That doesn't exist in D&D. And I think that that's a big part of what makes it so fun. And the fact that it's so collaborative, like everybody is telling that story together. I think I might have mentioned this on a on a previous episode, but something that has really delighted me is in talking about old campaigns that I've run with the people who I've, I played with, the, the, my players, uh, they've remarked, like, we all have memories of stuff that never happened, just these imagined events that we all took play, took part in. These things all happened in our head, but we all remember them. And it's kind of, it's there's something really not to be, you know cliche or or twee but there's something actually kind of magical about that this idea of like
0: it's a great shared hallucination
1: exactly it's this shared reality that exists in our brains we all went on these adventures even if they're completely made up and never actually took place in any sort of tangible reality
0: and uh also i i think we should definitely put up a link to uh jess's stream of our ashes against the grain game because that's another example of like great collaborative storytelling where like the fact that jess wanted so bad to basically win every carnival game created this like hilarious sort of cartoonish montage of just like failing and failing and failing and failing until you finally win every game
1: and often calling in my character to like okay i'll do it yeah
0: because you were just winning at everything. Nox is a yeah. uh, a great physical specimen, I guess. And that's Used up all my good rolls
1: on winning carnival games and then got bad ones for hit points.
0: <laughs> that's the thing. I was thinking that just earlier when you were talking about your hit point rolls. Anyway, uh, unless you had anything else to say. Uh, no, nah, man, we came full that's circle. Been... Yeah, all right. Uh, it's been episode 58, uh, 27th of April, 2021. I have been your host, Tom Lando, uh, and, uh, with me as always, my co-host McGill. And um, yeah, if really you want to get in, in touch circles. with us, if you want to get in touch with us, you can hit us up on Facebook, Compare and campaign on Facebook. Um, if you want to check out our supplemental materials and show notes and all the stuff we talk about and then link to later doodles of things that I upload whatnot. You can check us out on comparing And that is where we keep all that stuff. Uh, haven't had to make reference of the map in a while because they've been in hell. Yeah. But, uh, check, uh, check in next time for, uh, the imaginary ending of Live from Eberron, and uh, we'll follow up on that ding. Prairie Hag.
1: Level up. Get that ding.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, have a good one. Take care, everybody. Not me.